For me, going into it, I really saw it as, oh, it's no different than having my gallbladder removed. I learned sooner than later that it was more than that, but in my head, I'm like, it's just like having my gallbladder removed. That was not a big deal. So now you've been told by your doctor, get your shit in order, <laughs> you know, organize your life. And you go through six, eight months of getting evaluated, and now you're told, sorry, Charlie. I was getting ready to have surgery, and the anesthesiologist looked at me and said, I'm going to ask you one more time. Do you want to do this? You know, before we put this in your veins and you go to sleep. And I said, yes, I want to do this. I'm ready. I want to do it. Welcome to Lifespan. I'm your host, Jackie Wolf. The ability to replace failing organs and tissue is a relatively new ability for medicine. And for those organ recipients who get a second chance at life, an organ transplant is a welcome miracle. But it's not always a cure-all. There are not nearly enough organs available for patients who need them. An organ transplant surgery can be rough. Just the testing to see if you're an appropriate candidate is invasive and takes time. Recovery can be difficult, too. And there is no guarantee that an organ recipient's body will accept the new organ. Our immune system is designed to destroy invaders. Anti-rejection drugs help, but they work by suppressing the immune system, and a suppressed immune system means that transplant patients become far more susceptible to illness, especially right after the transplant. Most commonly, organs and tissues are retrieved from cadavers, usually from someone who has died suddenly, often in an accident. Less commonly, a relative offers to donate a kidney to a loved one whose kidneys have failed. A living donor can survive with one kidney. Or a living donor can donate part of their liver, because the liver is the one organ that can regenerate. Far less commonly, a stranger will offer to donate their kidney to anyone who needs it. This episode of Lifespan shares stories of all three types of donors. Kelly Nottingham donated a kidney to her mother, David Burke received a cadaver liver, and Cynthia Tindongan is an altruistic donor who gave one of her kidneys to someone she never met. We'll begin with Kelly. Her mother had struggled with uncontrolled diabetes and obesity most of her life. It was early 2012. She decided to do a gastric bypass surgery, and that was a turning point for her health-wise. She lost 140 pounds, so totally lost a human, and really started taking control of her life and was feeling much better. Part of why she did the surgery was to try to reduce her challenges on her kidney. After the gastric bypass surgery, Kelly's mom was feeling great, well enough to spend the winter in Arizona with Kelly's father. She was doing great and happy, but toward the end of her trip, she started slowing down. My dad said she just is tired and slow. So when she got back, she went to her nephrologist, and her kidney function had dropped from about 28% down below 20, so it was more like 17, 18% in that, that short period of time. The drop in kidney function was due not just to the years of uncontrolled diabetes, but also to an unnecessary six weeks of IV antibiotics administered initially for cellulitis. Unbeknownst to Kelly's mother's doctors, the line they installed to deliver the antibiotics was contaminated, and Kelly's mother kept getting sicker despite the antibiotics. So doctors kept up the intravenous antibiotics until Kelly insisted that her mother get a second opinion. And another set of doctors recognized immediately that the line installed to deliver the antibiotics was infected. Once the infected line was removed, Kelly's mother recovered quickly. 
But it was too late. Intravenous antibiotics can be very hard on your kidneys, especially kidneys that were not functioning well anyway. It could happen to anybody. But because she'd already had damage, it kind of exacerbated the damage. You know, a lot of people don't know the term iatrogenic, which is a condition caused by medical care. This is a classic example. Now, she had some contribution to it as well, but it's the straw that broke the camel's back of, of what happens. How old was your mom at this point? So mom was 64 years old, so relatively young. The heartbreaking part was here is this woman who had struggled with her weight, struggled with her health, and was buying new clothes, and she was feeling happy and looked great and felt better. When she went on to dialysis in April of 2013, it was heartbreaking because she was scared to death. It really messed with her because once she has dialysis, she's down for a good four to six hours afterwards. So she comes home, goes to bed. As debilitating as kidney dialysis is, Kelly's mother was adamant. She did not want any family member to give her a kidney, although family members were offering. She was waiting instead for a cadaver kidney. After extensive testing to make sure she was a viable candidate, doctors put Kelly's mother on the UNOS transplant waiting list, UNOS. UNOS stands for United Network for Organ Sharing. There are far more people in the United States who need organs than there are organs available, so UNOS has created a classic first-come, first-served waiting list. A few characteristics will allow you to get ahead of others in line or remove you from the list altogether, but for the most part, you just get listed, and then you wait your turn for an organ. The shortage of organs is one reason that everyone should make their wishes known to family. If you die, do you want your organs to be made available to someone who needs them? Let your family know. So once you're on that list, mom carried her telephone around her neck, literally, because if a kidney would come available, she would have an hour to respond back to the facility and say, okay, yes, I'm in, I'll be there. It's like, okay, let's go. And that phone call is always about a cadaver kidney. Correct. It's always um, about, you know, someone unfortunately has passed, that you have the same blood type, there's a high probability this could work, you need to be here. So she unfortunately never received that phone call. So Kelly, without telling anyone in her family, decided she would go in to be tested to see if she would be a compatible donor for her mother. But I'd already made the decision. I was like, it's going to happen. I'm the oldest daughter. I look almost a spitting image of her. I'm going to match. And that's what I had told myself. And I was a 5.6 out of a 6-point scale. So I was practically a perfect donor. But Kelly's mom was resistant at first. Her mother did not want her daughter to make the sacrifice. And I said, I don't care. You brought me into this world. You've given me every opportunity in this world. This is the least I can do. It's safe. I'll be fine. I'm healthy. I'll be great. For me, going into it, I really saw it as, oh, it's no different than having my gallbladder removed. I learned sooner than later that it was more than that. But in my head, I'm like, it's just like having my gallbladder removed. That was not a big deal. Kelly's mother's insurance paid for everything, not only for her own care, but also for all the tests that Kelly had to take to make sure she was a compatible donor, plus all of Kelly's care during and after the surgery. The costs associated with organ transplant can be enormous, and not just for the cost of care. The amount of salary lost, just when you need an income the most, can be devastating. And while there can be financial problems, there can also be health problems. Organ donation is rarely a smooth process. After being declared an excellent match, 
Doctors decided they wanted Kelly to lose 15 pounds and get her cholesterol level down before the surgery. Obviously, doctors wanted to ensure Kelly's health, not just her mother's, but Kelly was frustrated. Why hadn't doctors told her this sooner? Her mother had gone on kidney dialysis in April 2013. Kelly was first tested in August of 2014, and it wasn't until November of 2015 that Kelly was finally cleared to donate her kidney to her mother. In the meantime, Kelly's mother had become more dependent on dialysis, three days a week for four hours each of the three days. I was officially a donor, and we found out that my mom had to then go through to determine if she was feasible. And so now we're back at square one going, okay, we wanted to do this before Christmas, so that way everybody would be home, we wouldn't have to worry about being away from work. By now, Kelly was beyond frustrated. But what she soon discovered was that the donor and the recipient are two very separate patients under the care of two very separate teams. And each team makes their patient their priority. And Kelly's mother's physicians had not realized that Kelly was in the approval stage, so they had not rushed to test her mother. So it is a very conscious separation. And this I have to say, as a living donor, I appreciate. I am the focus of that living donor team. I am the patient they worry about. It's not that they don't care about my mom. I am their patient. My mom's team, the transplant team, my mom was their focus. It's a conscious separation. I, I was told throughout the entire process, if at any time you decide you don't want to do this, you don't want to donate, all you have to say is get me out of it. And they would come up with a medical reason that would then be reported back to my mom's team. And we should say this is so important because think about the, the pressure that might be brought to bear within a family mm -hmm. um, about keeping someone you love alive. I've shared that with other people who've decided to donate or contemplated it. I'm like, you really are the focus. They're not out to harvest your organ um, just so they can mark another one on their list. They truly are looking at you as a patient. So my mom got approved in December 15, 2015, then of course the holidays hit, and we're trying to schedule surgical suites, and you can't at the holidays. It's just not feasible. So we're now 24, almost 24 months past my initial stuff. But finally, the surgery is scheduled. The entire family is there. We travel in a pack, Kelly explained. But the night before the surgery, Kelly's mother calls Kelly in tears. Her mother had hurt her back. It was killing her, she said. And she was afraid the surgery would have to be canceled. I said, I'm sure it's nothing. They'll take care of you. You'll be fine. And the next day, everything seemed to go ahead as scheduled, at least at first. And went by and I said goodbye to my mom. And I cried like a baby because all of a sudden I got very nervous. But they got me down to the OR. The anesthesiologist came by and said, you're really nervous. Let me give you a little something to calm you down. I said, all right. So they put a Dilaudid in my system. So at this point, I care about nothing. And my surgeon comes back and said, Kelly, we're going to cancel the surgery. I don't care because I'm under the influence of some serious narcotics, but I do care. I'm like, what do you mean? He said, with your mom having back pain, we can't do the surgery because if something goes wrong, with a kidney transplant, generally it, it shows as back pain. So if she's on the table with back pain, we can't discriminate, is this the back pain or is this something going wrong with the kidney? My family was devastated. Everyone, my mom felt terrible. My dad said, oh, I should have helped my mom more. 
everybody was upset but me because I was higher than a kite. Um, and once I slept and woke up the next morning realizing, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to do this again. I'm going to have to go through all this process again. The surgery was rescheduled, this time for March 7th. So did you do the whole travel thing again, the whole family Everybody go in the went, pack? Yes. This time my mom and I were in side-by-side rooms. So she came over and hung out with me before um, I got taken because I was the first. And they take me down first um, and uh, got me prepped. So I had surgery. Um, I remember waking up vaguely in the uh, recovery room for about three minutes. And t- my dad asked me, you know, how I was feeling. And I said it was it effing hurt. And I never have cursed like that to my parents. <laughs> so that it, that was the drugs. I was like, that wasn't me. That was the drugs. Now, I've heard that when someone gets a kidney transplant, the recipient then who has not been feeling well and has been di- on dialysis, they for them, it's much easier because they instantly feel better. Yes. But for the donor, there's a very difficult recovery period. Yep. My mom produced four liters of, of fluid as soon as the kidney connected. The, the doctors were thrilled. So they all teased me that I have mega kidneys, and they're like, this is amazing. Um, but, yeah, so I got to see mom about three days postoperatively because I was having trouble with digestion. I got to see her on the 9th of March, and it was so exciting to see her because she is sitting up laughing. I'm walking like I'm a 150-year-old woman crutched over, but, you know, it was so exciting to see her and see a smile on her face that she hadn't had. I mean, she'd had smiles, but it was such—she felt so good. Surgery was on Monday. I went home on Thursday. And mom got released on Friday. She came home and was great for about a month and a half. I think she just unfortunately got an infection. And as she got the infections, it affected the kidney. Um, so my mom spent about uh, the next year in, uh, in and out of the hospital. Kelly's mother had gotten C. diff, a potentially dangerous bacterial infection commonly acquired by patients during hospital stays. Kelly's mother also began to hallucinate. So she became very childlike for about a year where we would have to fight her to eat. Part of the challenge of watching that was that the kidney was also starting to get affected. So she went from really having great outputs to not having as good outputs to let's put her on dialysis once a week to let's put her on dialysis two times a week. So she was on dialysis two times a week about a year out and has just recently had to be moved on to dialysis three times a week. So my my kidney is starting to really decline. Um, and we have we, I still have hope that if we can keep her healthy for a, an extended period of time, that it'll bounce back because there are cases and there's been research that demonstrate it will happen um, or can happen. But it's also, well, we've put somebody at now 67 years old having these complications. And, and honestly, I think it's affected her, her spunk. She's not as spunky with it because it, it's a little bit of a defeat. Even though that our road seemed like it was very rocky, I would do it again in a heartbeat for her. And in talking to other living donors, they say very similar things. 
before your mom needed a kidney, had you thought about organ donation before? I mean, were you an organ donor on your driver's license? So I was, but I really had never thought about it. The interesting thing is as you start talking about organ donation are the misconceptions of what that means of, oh, well, if you crash alongside the road, someone's going to, you know, they're going to put you on life support just to take your organs. And I'm like, that's not how it works. <laughs> so I've, I've really become this one woman, a sounding board for organ donation in general. Register with Donate for Life because that's a national registry that has donors because oftentimes you may not have your license there accessible. I've been reading a lot about the organ donation and that the challenge when the, the donor has made that decision and the family doesn't know um, and having really putting that onus, uh, that conversation on the, the healthcare provider to say, so mom, dad, family member has said they want to donate and the family doesn't know. It becomes this very uncomfortable process for both the healthcare provider and the family. Kelly has also become a great advocate for making your wishes known about what to do with your organs after death. While my story hasn't been able to say that, and everybody walked off happily, I still have more years with my mom. And I don't know that we would have if I couldn't have qualified as a donor. While Kelly's mother's kidney transplant was not the success the family had hoped, as Kelly noted, there's still the possibility that the kidney will, in Kelly's words, bounce back. And regardless, the transplant bought her mother time that she might not have had. David Burke's experience with organ transplant was different from Kelly's mother's in several ways. The liver came from a cadaver, not a living donor, and he's had his donated liver now for almost 20 years with very few problems. He tells his story. My experience really started 10 years before I had any issues at all. In 1991, I was required to get some kind of an executive insurance policy by a client. I had been healthy. I'd you know, been to a doctor a few times here and there, never been hospitalized, never had anything major, and I would have been like 43 or 44. As part of the routine physical that the insurance company required him to take before they would insure him, David had a blood test, and the results came back indicating that something was wrong with his liver. As David put it, his liver panel was out of whack, so he went to see a liver specialist who ordered a liver biopsy. David described that experience as getting stabbed with a giant ice pick. I had an appointment to get the results, and, you know, a few weeks later, he says, well, you've got non-A, non-B hepatitis. So it hadn't been named yet, but turns out it was hepatitis C. Hepatitis C is a viral infection that causes liver inflammation and in some cases can lead to serious liver damage, including liver cancer. In other words, today we know that it's a serious diagnosis, although when David was diagnosed, there was little understanding of the disease. It's kind of explained to me that it can uh, possibly cause some cirrhosis and that could possibly lead to tumors. But, you know, it's just kind of hard to say. So they weren't really alarmed. They really didn't know much about hepatitis C. They didn't even have a name for it. Right. That's my impression. Maybe they were more alarmed than they were letting on. Both the hepatologist and my family physician here kind of laid it out that it's something that may cause you some serious problems. In my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I've got this liver disease or liver problem. Sometime in the future, I'm probably going to die of a liver problem. 
You know, it's like, okay, you know your fate and you kind of resign yourself to, uh, you know, that might be the killer. But it was way in the future, in my mind. David has never known or been interested in knowing how he got hepatitis C. You know, at this point, I have it. And whatever happened 20 years ago, it just doesn't apply right now. A few years later, David's family doctor told him about a treatment for hepatitis C, interferon. But it only had a 30 to 40 percent success rate, and it came with serious side effects. So David opted to forego treatment. I'm feeling okay. And yeah, I know I have this disease, but I'm busy with life, two kids, building a business, whatever. But in 2000, David began slowing down. I'm starting to feel a little, let's say, middle-aged. I hit 50. I'm a little less energetic, and I'm feeling a little bloated, fat, kind of middle-aged spread. You know, I'm just thinking that's the way it is when you hit 50, right? At some point shortly after that, David gets what he thinks is food poisoning. He's throwing up, feeling weak, has stomach pain, so his wife drives him to the emergency room. And doctor comes in, takes a look at me, and he said, how long have your eyes been yellow? And I said, I don't know, or your skin. It was your skin. How long has your skin been yellow? They put me in an ambulance for a bumpy ride up to Columbus. That's 80 miles from David's home. Once I told them the history that I had hepatitis C, they pretty much knew that you had a liver issue. And typically, when the liver starts getting cirrhotic, it kind of constrains the blood from going through uh, the tissue, and it creates a back pressure. You'll get these extended varices in your throat, in your esophagus, which are veins that will bulge, kind of like varicose veins in your throat, and then they'll burst and the stuff will go down in your stomach. And what happened with me was the back pressure caused kind of a genera generalized seeping of blood into my stomach. And that's what was going on when I was vomiting and everything. I wound up on a, a a series of medications to treat the symptoms. Because the liver is not functioning properly, it affects multiple body systems. So eventually things got stabilized. I was able to, to function and get back to kind of living a normal life. The energy was still an issue. I mean, they can't give you energy pills. David had gained a lot of weight. His waist was two or three times larger than normal. He had serious edema around his ankles. But what he thought was middle-aged spread was actually liver failure. He had cirrhosis of the liver. There's nothing to treat cirrhosis. I'm looking up what's the future look like. In some cases, it was pretty grim. Transplant was an option. It wasn't something that was routine. That was kind of already on the slide. Transplant was something out there. But had I even gone at that point, I probably wasn't ready for it. The liver is kind of just, you think it just sits there and filters the blood and gets rid of that alcohol when I'm out on a binge drink, but it does a whole lot more than that. My platelet count was low. My spleen was expanded because it was eating up all these dead blood cells. His doctor, who is also a personal friend, showed up at his office. And he said, well, the CAT scan showed you have a liver tumor. So if I were you, I would make sure I'm getting my life in order. The tumor was malignant, caused by the hepatitis C that caused cirrhosis of the liver. David's doctor told him that his only option was a liver transplant. Fortunately, David had always provided good health insurance to his employees, 
and knowing about his own illness, had always made sure that the insurance provided coverage for organ transplant. So I I looked for a transplant center. I decided to go to Cleveland Clinic. You know, they have a reputation, but also I had a support system up there because I came from Cleveland. My sister was still living there. In the meantime, are you on a transplant list? No, no. I'm, I'm just like, let's go find out if I'm a candidate. So this starts a whole new phase of having this liver disease. The things that they need to check for are to see if, A, you're healthy enough to recover from a very major surgery. And B, are you sick enough that you're almost ready to die? (laughs) As we learned from Kelly's experience when she wanted to donate a kidney to her mother, medical testing is thorough, whether you aim to be an organ donor or the recipient of a donated organ. So it takes a lot of time. David was up and back between Athens, Ohio, and Cleveland. That's about an eight-hour drive round trip every few weeks for more tests with doctors in different departments. When my doctor came to my office and told me, let's have a talk, that was the end of September. So we're looking at now, Christmas time, appointments get a little harder to make. Doctors didn't like the results of one particular test, David's stress test. They thought it might indicate some cardiac irregularities. They get me in the procedure room, which is, you know, chrome and fluorescent lights, bright lights. Feels kind of cold because you're lying there with a, basically a sheet on a gurney. And the resident says to me, normally we'd give you some IV Valium, but with your liver, it would be two or three weeks before that get out of your system. So we're going to give you a local anesthetic when they cut into your leg to get, get to the femoral artery. I'm thinking some Valium that would be in there for two weeks may not be a bad thing. <laughs> But after, I don't know how long, not too long, I'm starting to feel kind of wet in my crotch, cold. I say to the nurse, I think maybe something's going on. And she looks down, and I was bleeding where they had put the incision to thread the catheter out through your arteries. And so she had to stand there for 20 minutes with a compress, and that was to stop the bleeding. Ultimately, the test said, okay, a false positive. And the cardiologist said, if I was a betting man, I'd say you're okay. After David underwent the invasive cardiac test and endured its complications, doctors found spots on the upper lobe of one of his lungs. So they performed a lavage, squirting fluid into his affected lung and then sucking the fluid out to look at the cells. In that way, they discovered he had a lung infection, a bacteria endemic to southeast Ohio where David lives. Still later, doctors also discovered a fungal infection. Most of us have these small ailments that we're not even aware of and that don't hurt us. But when you're getting an organ transplant, doctors have to suppress your immune system so that your body won't reject the donated organ. And in suppressing the immune system, all these otherwise largely benign bacteria and fungi can cause real health problems. So doctors have to deal with them before the transplant. In the meantime, of course, David is worried about the tumor on his liver. I asked the doctors in the transplant center, how about this tumor? And I said, shouldn't we kind of be worried about knocking that down? So David went in for yet another procedure to ablate his tumor. Which is shooting it with microwaves. In the beginning of June, David goes back to Cleveland to find out his status as an organ recipient. So I go back up there. This is the head of the department. And he says, I think you're too high of a risk. So we're not putting you on the list. He said, because you have the mycobacterium and and the fungal infection, you know, we think that this could get way out of hand when we have to knock down your immune system. 
So now you've been told by your doctor, get your shit in order, <laughs> you know, organize your life. And you go through six, eight months of getting evaluated. And now you're told, sorry, Charlie. David's doctor back in Athens, Ohio, suggests that David go to the Mayo Clinic. So David does a little investigating and finds out that the Mayo Clinic has recently performed their first liver transplant on an AIDS patient. So, David thinks to himself, they obviously don't shy away from high-risk patients. He flew up to Rochester, Minnesota to see doctors at the Mayo Clinic. They took me in, they reviewed my records. They said, we're not too concerned about those infections. We think we can control that. But we still want to take a look at a few things. The testing was all pretty quick, nothing too dramatic. One of the things they do, they right away started introducing me to the transplant system. As part of the Mayo's transplant process, David was introduced to the clinic chaplain. He said, listen, we have a support group for people waiting and for people who have just had transplants and they get together, and there's one coming up like tomorrow. He says, it'd be really good if you come down to that. So I did. There was a guy there whose his wife was there with him, and, and he was just like, eight days out of surgery having a transplant. He was like, it's not that big a deal, you know? It's, I might look bad, but I feel great. You know, he was really encouraging, and it was good. I kind of it lifted my spirits. I'm not a, a downer-type person, and I wasn't necessarily feeling, you know, depressed, but it was, you know, a concern about what's going to happen. So that was a good experience. So the Mayo Clinic put David on the UNOS waiting list, and he went back to Ohio for a few days, tidied up everything he had to do at work and home, and then headed back to Rochester by car to wait for a liver. He didn't know how long it would take, and he wanted to have a car there while he was waiting. It was then that he discovered that the entire city of Rochester, Minnesota, revolves around medical care. There's long-term stays in the hotels. They're all set up for it. I'm telling you, it's not unusual to be in the hotel elevator and have a bed pushed in with a patient on because it's medical city. After only five days in Rochester, after taking the requisite psychological tests at the clinic, David gets a call in the middle of the night. And they said, we think we have a liver for you, so why don't you come in, get here at 7 in the morning. So David's wife and children hopped on a plane to join him in Minnesota. It turned out he'd been fast-tracked on the UNOS waiting list. Even though it's customarily a first-come, first-served list, he'd been bumped up due to his critical condition. So it turns out I was right at the top of the list because I had cirrhosis, and I had the tumors that pointed to me being as bad as you want to have it before you transplant. And they told me the only person that would get one ahead of me was somebody in acute liver failure. Seven o'clock in the morning, I go to the hospital. They start prepping me, shaving me, IV hookups, laxative, clean out your balls, all that and stuff. And I take it this was a relatively good match for you. The interesting thing about liver matches is not so much tissue. It's just like blood type and size. So it's fairly easy matching. It was around 4.30 in the afternoon, so it was all day in the hospital just kind of lying there prepped. And they wheeling me down the hall to the surgery, and my wife and kids came in. They had just arrived. from, So that was pretty good. So I went out. I woke up. I'm in ICU. Yeah, tubes in me and everything. It wasn't that bad. The goal there is to get you out of the hospital within about a week. So you've got big incisions there healing. And there's the direct thing of making sure the 
the wounds are healing, and then there's dealing with the potential rejection. Now, after about eight days, they want to get you out of there. And that's where you have to spend another 30 days, if all goes to plan, right there in Rochester. Right. And I'm on a regimen at this point in, in that hotel. I mean, you have to have a caregiver. First two weeks, my sister came up, and then my wife came up for the, for the remainder of the time. There were 14 meds I had to take at different times of the day, different amounts. And you're also rehabbing for having your abdomen cut through. Um, you know, walking is an issue. And eventually, 30 days, roughly 30 days later, you know, was able to leave. But I also had to go back for a four-month checkup. And I have to tell you also that just changing out your liver doesn't cure you of hepatitis. That was going to be one of my last questions. Okay. Well, I'll explain what, what happened there. I was still kind of recovering from the transplant. And at the one-year anniversary, they wanted to do this biopsy. I'm lying there, again, two hours or so you have to lie still. Um, and um, I'm just kind of feeling my stomach is getting a little weird. I'm feeling kind of bloated. I say to the nurse, listen, my stomach is really bothering me. And she says, well, I'll go get the doctor. The doctor comes up and looks at me, and my belly is now big. And he said, I think we better take you down to interventional x-ray or radiology. What, what they knew I was bleeding. And what they thought they probably had hit a, an artery or a vein in my liver, well, they couldn't find it. They were, there was no specific area where it was bleeding. So in the middle of what was supposed to be a routine annual check of his transplanted liver, David suddenly needs more surgery. They have to go in and they make an incision right up through the middle, just kind of avoid the belly button and open me up and drain the blood out. And so now I'm, in, you know, recovering from a second surgery. After that experience, David took interferon for a year to rid his body of hepatitis C. And after the one-year course of interferon, he was hepatitis C-free. Yeah, so that's pretty much the story. I haven't had any problems with any of those fungal infection or the mycobacterium. David now takes the minimum dose of anti-organ rejection drugs that the Mayo Clinic allows. It's like one tiny pill a day. They've got me now down to uh, quarterly uh, blood tests, blood work, just to check up and make things are going okay. So it's really pretty minimal. And they said, you know, it just eventually turns out you're just living your life. And you're thankful for it, and you think about all the things that went right, but it's not like you get down and pray about it every day. David's liver has been his own for many years. He barely takes any anti-rejection medication anymore. But organ transplants are still on his mind. His daughter has cystic fibrosis, and she's currently on the UNOS list waiting for a lung transplant. He urges everyone who's eligible to donate an organ to note on their driver's license that they want to be an organ donor after death and to tell family members that they have designated themselves to be an organ donor. Cynthia Tindongan is the rarest of organ donors. She's an altruistic donor, someone who gave a kidney to a stranger. I made my kidney donation in January of 2007. But the journey really started a, maybe, I think, a couple of years before that, when I saw in the Athens News a story about a man who needed a kidney. 
And there was a call for people to get tested to see if they might be donors. And so maybe kind of impulsively, I just thought, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be tested. I got tested shortly thereafter, and I wasn't a match. But Cynthia still wanted to donate a kidney. So she called the medical center where the original organ recipient was receiving care. But they told her that they didn't take organs from anonymous living donors. They would only consider a living donor who was associated with a specific recipient. But Cynthia kept thinking about donating a kidney to a stranger who needed one. The seed kept growing slowly, reluctantly, um, without a lot of sunlight or water, but um, it was still there. Eventually, Cynthia contacted the Charleston Area Medical Center in Charleston, West Virginia. Her children were still very young, so she knew that wherever she did this had to be close to home. So she drew an expanded circle around Athens, Ohio, the university town where she lived, and found the hospital in Charleston. I, I was a part of an online message board group, and I found myself agreeing with a, a number of people who were going to do anonymous donations, or they're sometimes called altruistic donations, um, that we felt somehow a, a calling to do this. Like, this was, this had a deep spiritual element for me and a lot of other people. And I met, in the process, I met online a, a Catholic priest who had done an anonymous donation, and I and I drew a line from him to Catholic social teaching, which is about social justice. And, you know, maybe I read way too much into this, but I thought there are lots of poor people who don't have the resources to have this done. Maybe I can help. I don't have a lot of money, and I don't have a lot of time. I can't spend hours volunteering someplace, and I can't donate money, but I can do this. And it just became clearer and clearer to me that this was the right thing for me to do. So Cynthia underwent a battery of tests, lots of testing, she said, to determine her suitability to be a living organ donor. And that testing included a psychological evaluation. I mean, there could be a, a case of a situation where someone has some kind of a messiah complex or they've done something terrible in their life and they want to make reparations for that. And so they do. They, they kind of want to see, okay, you want to do this thing, but overall, are you pretty emotionally healthy? And so I did that and, and lots of other testing. And then it was time to go to Charleston and meet the surgeon. And he also discouraged me. He said, you don't have to do this. You're not going to save this person's life, you know. And I was a little bit taken aback and said, okay, I know. No, I don't have to do this, and I'm not going to save his life. I still want to do it. The medical center in Charleston did still more testing. When they sent Cynthia home, they asked her to keep thinking about what she was offering to do. They drew the process out on purpose. Medical centers that do transplants are very wary of altruistic donors. They don't want to exploit anyone who might be mentally ill, or as Cynthia suggested, who feels guilty about something and wants to atone for their misdeed. Over time, Cynthia remained adamant about wanting to donate a kidney, and she was equally adamant that there be no conditions attached to her donation. The idea of doing it in West Virginia where I might end up with a person living in poverty, a person of color, somebody who was in some way disenfranchised, who I might be able to help. It's really just came down to that simple thing. I did have people in my life discouraging me. I had family members who said, why are you doing this? You can do other good things. You don't need to do this. A family member said to Cynthia, what if your children need a kidney someday and you don't have one to give to them? 
Cynthia asked the Catholic priest who had been an altruistic donor about that particular dilemma, and he responded by saying, what if you were in a boat with your children and you saw someone drowning and you had a life preserver with you? Would you refuse to throw the drowning person the life preserver because your children might fall overboard later and need the life preserver? That argument cemented her determination to donate a kidney. And by late 2006, the medical center had found a recipient for Cynthia's kidney. They told me that he was a a 54-year-old man who had a lot of health issues. And I said, fine, you know, the first person that is a match, give my kidney to that person. So a couple of days before surgery, I had to go down to Charleston again and do what they what they call a, a sort of a final check to make sure that the recipient hasn't developed any antibodies that would facilitate a rejection of this organ. Before that final check, doctors asked her if she wanted to meet the recipient of her kidney before the surgery. And Cynthia, who had thought until then that her donation would be anonymous, said yes, it would be a good idea for them to meet. I met the recipient and his wife, and I never really had any doubts about this. I mean, this was a spiritual process for me, and it was happening on maybe a little different plane. And I was kind of on rote. I was going through this process. I was going down this road, not in a conscious way with my feet on the ground. Even though I did have my feet on the ground and I was conscious and I was clear, I don't know how else to explain it than that. But if I had had any doubts and I didn't have any doubts, when I met the recipient, they would have vanished because he started crying. And it was really moving. And I just thought, wow, this is powerful to be a part of this. And... You know, they gave me this gift. They gave me this little crystal angel and said, you are an angel to us. And everybody was crying. (laughs) And he told me that if anyone needed a kidney, it was him. And he'd been on dialysis, I think he said, for four years, which if you even know a little bit about dialysis, it's a horrible way to live. And he said that I can't remember, at least a couple, maybe three or four donations had come up and fallen through, which is not uncommon. And those are probably for cadaver kidneys. Probably. Living organs have a much better prognosis for the recipient. How much time did you spend together? Oh, not very long, maybe a half an hour. And then I left, and the next night I was getting ready to have surgery, and the anesthesiologist looked at me and said, I'm going to ask you one more time. Do you want to do this? You know, before we put this in your veins and you go to sleep. And I said, yes, I want to do this. I'm ready. I want to do it. When I came out of surgery, um, I was in the recovery room, and my husband came in, and, you know, he was looking after me, taking care of me. And they told me that as soon as they attached my kidney, the man started urinating right on the table which is the best news because it means the kidney's going to work right away. Cynthia was able to see the recipient of her kidney a few days after the surgery. And he was all pinked up. Everyone said he looked so much better. 
Then, a few days after returning home, Cynthia was sick for 24 hours, some kind of intestinal flu, she thinks. Holding a cushion next to her incision while she vomited was worse than the surgery. But I recovered and um, haven't really looked back. It has had no effect on my life. I have no regrets. But I let them put me to sleep, cut me open, take out my organ, sew me back up, and send me on my way. What was I thinking? Not in a bad way at all, just like, wow, how did I get there? Sometimes I, I, I kind of think of it like that. Cynthia is not in regular touch with the recipient of her kidney, but she does know that the kidney is still functioning well. Cynthia reflects on the importance of being an organ donor, not an altruistic living donor, but simply stating on your driver's license and letting your family members know that you want your organs donated after you die. On the most simple, direct level, it's sort of a no-brainer. Why wouldn't you do something like that? You will not need those organs anymore. Why wouldn't you give someone another chance at life? It's, it's a gift that, that you could give someone. Why would any of us ever choose not to do that? Even though we've talked to two living donors on this episode of Lifespan, the most common avenue to donation is after death. David Burke received a liver from a deceased donor. One deceased organ donor can save up to eight lives. Yet on average, 20 people on the UNOS waiting list die each day because so few organs are available. Learn about organ donation and think about listing yourself as an organ donor, either on the Donate for Life National Registry or on your driver's license or both. Thank you for listening to Lifespan. Adam Rich is our sound engineer and co-executive producer. Harley Wince is our audio editor. I'm your host and co-executive producer, Jackie Wolf, professor of social medicine at Ohio University. Join us for our next episode of Lifespan on the experience of minority students in medical school. <laughs>